Hello and welcome to Top in Tech, a global council podcast. My name is Colin Darcy and I'm a senior practice director here for tech, media and telecoms. We have a very special episode this week. Last week, we recorded an event with a number of my colleagues from the London, Brussels and Washington DC offices to reflect first on the AI Safety Summit, which was hosted last week by the UK government, but also to talk through the results of a major piece of research which Global Council launched a couple of weeks ago on the regulation of generative AI. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. It ranges widely, but captures the real essence of the debate at the moment on AI regulation more broadly, but also very specifically the issues that arise from generative AI. So hello and welcome to Global Council's uh, webinar, After the Summit, What Next for Regulating Generative AI? It's been a busy week for AI policy. We've had the AI Safety Summit at Bletchley Park in the UK. We've also had the Biden administration publish its executive order on Monday. We've had Germany, France and Italy also announce much closer cooperation on AI development. So lots to get our teeth into today. We're going to start with an assessment of the UK's AI Safety Summit this week with uh, Theresa Dumption who's an associate in GC's tech, media, and telecoms practice, and she's been following the ball-by-ball events very closely this week and will give us her reflections. We'll then move to Raf Malik, who is the head of research and insight at Global Council, and Megan Stagman, who's a director in the tech policy team, and they will present the conclusions of a recent research report that we've published on the regulation of generative AI. Finally, we'll just turn to Flo Chalker, who's a senior associate in our healthcare team, and to David Song, an associate director in our financial services team. Flo's based in the US and David is based in Brussels, and they're going to talk us through the impact of AI and the regulation of gentif AI on other sectors of the economy, looking a little bit more broadly than just looking at the tech sector. So, Teresa, if you don't mind if we could start with you, and I'd like to just have a relatively straightforward overview of what happened this week at the summit. There's been a blizzard of media coverage, uh, with much of the focus being on celebrity figures like Elon Musk. But could you bring this all back down to earth and summarize clearly for us what were the concrete outcomes from this week? Right. So I think first day we've heard about the Bletchley Park Declaration. I think that's the key major outcome. And it's also a term that's probably going to be marked in history books. Um, So the Bletchley Park Declaration touches on four points to which all attending governments have agreed on, including the US and China. And I think that's one of the first main outcomes of, um, of the event overall. So One point is that countries agree on identifying AI safety risks and concerns and to create a shared understanding of that. um, The second point is that risk-based policies should be developed in each um, member state which which signed the declaration. The countries also agree on creating a sustained and inclusive global dialogue. And that means that the next summit will be hosted in South Korea in about six months. Um, At this point, we think it's going to be a rather small digital event. But in one year's time, France will host the next in-person event, um, which will likely have the similar um, framing as this summit. And lastly, there's an initiative to create inclusive network of science and scientific research around frontier AI safety. And then on the second day, I think we had a bit more tangible results, which go deeper into some of the commitments made in the declaration. 
So concretely on AI safety risks, all member states have agreed to develop an international states of science report. That report will be chaired by Joshua Bengio, who is a renowned AI expert. It will be supported by an expert advisory panel and most importantly, a representative of all attending countries will partner in creating that report. And this will be published in six months at the expected summit in South Korea. And then the last, um, I think, tangible outcome is an initiative around safety testing. Now, that is a bit more of an exclusive initiative um, where only Western and aligned governments such as Germany, UK, Italy, US, Japan, uh, South Korea have been coming together with some of the leading um, AI developers, which were at the summit. And they have agreed that more research is needed in terms of how to test AI for safety. And they have committed um, to invest public sec- in, in public sector capabilities for this. In that same vein, the UK has announced the establishment, the official launch of its AI Safety Institute, which will come from its previous uh, Frontier AI Task Force, which has been around for a couple of months now, um, and which will collaborate with international partners such as the newly established US. SAI Safety Institute. Thanks for that wrap up, Teresa. You, you, you've come through quite a long list there of uh, announcements. So, if we were to, you know, if we're going to go by numbers, it sounds like it was quite a successful summit. But can you just give a little bit of a sense of, particularly if you're the UK government, but also more broadly when we're thinking through moving forward the global governance of AI, would you rate the summit as a success? Well, the UK government has definitely seen a big success in this. Um, It's managed to bring all these international countries together. It's also managed to create a a very broad, but a consensus between the US and China. The summit will be continued. I think that has been a main aim as well. And it brought some tangible initiatives underway. And I think that's something that wasn't necessarily expected one week ago when media coverage was saying that's a bit disorganized, a bit vague about in terms of what it can achieve. And I think it's shown a real leadership in terms of also bringing the tech sector in terms of companies together. So that in itself is, I think, a big achievement. Of course, there are points of critique and these are valid as well. For example, that there are no more decisive measures, no more tangible regulatory action. But I think that was unlikely to happen from the start. And I think what we have seen in terms of the Bletchley Declaration and the testing initiatives is on the upper end of what we could expect. So I think overall, it is it can be seen as a as a success. Yeah, and I think the the summit, I guess, when it was first announced back, I think it was June, had quite a lot of potential uh, hype behind it that were really sort of the expectations were potentially quite high. Uh, but I think in recent weeks we've seen a lot of lot of sort of almost sniping and uh, criticism of the government and the approach it's taken that I guess dampened down expectations somewhat. So I think definitely the mood music coming out of the summit and in some of the coverage which has followed has certainly been a little bit more positive, I think, than many would have expected perhaps a week ago. But one of those things, Teresa, that was contributing to the lower expectations around the summit was also this sense that perhaps there were tensions between the UK and the US, or at least a sense that the US has been asserting itself on AI policy and as a leader on AI policy in the same week that the UK was 
running the AI Safety Summit. So could you just talk us through a little bit of that and whether you think that is a fair characterization of relations between those two countries? Well, I think certainly in the media and in, in, a, in a lot of ways, there's a perception that the US has sort of overshadowed what the UK has achieved, not just in the summit, but for itself around the the last week, um, whether that is intentional or otherwise, I wouldn't want to necessarily make a statement of that. Um, but I think what you also have to understand here is that governments always, always talk to their national audiences first. So, for example, when Kamala Harris gave her speech in London, she was talking as much to U.S. lawmakers and civil society um, as to 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 the attendees in London. So. I don't think it's fair to say it's necessarily an in, in, in attempt to upstate the UK. Um, it's it's definitely a piece of legislation which will keep um, businesses busy for the next couple of weeks and talking about it. But that stands next to the summit, and I think I don't think it's fair to say that that will create a big amount of tension between the US and UK, especially because a lot in a lot of ways uh, the US and UK also align in their approaches on regulating AI, and that what became really clear clear in the summit as well. I think one thing that was perhaps a potential point of tension, we saw Kamala Harris talking about how actually near-term risks, such as people facing certain decisions from AI systems that affected their daily life, was existential for those people, which was interpreted by some as a slight dig at the focus of the summit on existential risks of frontier AI. And I don't think the performance of Rishi Sunak somewhat uh, strangely interviewing Elon Musk last night will have dampened concerns about this being a big focus on existential risk, but also a big focus on large technology companies rather than civil society and various others who are going to be affected and want to have an input into the process around AI governance globally. But before we move on to, to Raf and Megan, Teresa, the one thing I just wanted to boil this all back down, lots announced. We think it's you know, a partial success, at least. We think potentially the tensions between the UK and the US are overdone. All very interesting. But for those people who are on the line who are representing businesses or investors and others who will ultimately be at the coalface of AI regulation, what has this week changed for them? Right. So I think what you need to take away is there will be no immediate shift. The regulatory environment will continue to focus more on a national level, on a supranational level in terms of what the EU is doing on its AI Act. This is where the regulation, which will really shape how you can develop AI and apply AI, um, will come out of. But I think it's also fair to say that we're seeing also a little bit of a new international dimension in the conversation. We're seeing fragmentation of global rules around AI, and that needs to be addressed in order to make it possible to um, to market, to trade, and to 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 work on AI on a global scale. And this summit has cr started to create an international framework for these conversations, especially now that we know it's it's going to be ongoing. And I think. One last point is that, for example, in other big global issues, we've seen that first um, countries come together to create a shared knowledge base, to create a shared understanding of certain terms in the negotiations around climate policy. We've seen that. And from there on, we might see something more concrete. And that will then be something where companies and businesses need to really pay attention to. So that is the second point. And as a third point, I would say there are new institutions being created 
in through the summit. For example, the UK AI Safety Institute, which will work internationally, the US AI Safety Institute. And these are new stakeholders which businesses should engage with if they want to influence the future of um, AI regulation. Well, thanks, Therese. I think the that there's a lot that I guess this week can do for international collaboration, and we'll see whether this really moves towards a system whereby we have more similar rules between different countries. But I think, as you sort of say, for the foreseeable six to 12 months, for those who are sort of following these things, you're going to have to keep on following what's going on in the US with the executive order, what's going on in the UK with the white paper, what's going on in the EU with the AI Act. And while some of those initiatives are pointing in the same direction, they will end up being somewhat contradictory. And that's going to be a fact of life that there is going to be an element of fragmentation in AI global governance for the foreseeable future. So, Raf, let's go on to um, our report. And I think where we started uh, in that conversation with Teresa was to talk about the fact that in some senses, civil society, there's been complaints that they've been sort of locked out a little bit from this process. Obviously, there were lots of civil society members who, who attended the summit, but that there could be greater engagement with other parts of society and not just focusing on the frontier AI side of things. So we've done a lot of public polling here. So it'd be great if you can sort of pull us into that and give us a sense of what the public, at least in the EU, the UK and the US, think about in specifically AI, but also generative AI. Sounds good. Thanks, Conan. So um, I'll begin with a brief overview of the methodological approach underpinning this report. Uh, so we conducted research with two main audiences, uh, the general public uh, and opinion formers. On the uh, public side, we held a citizen's jury in London to explore perceptions in real depth before conducting uh, nationally representative surveys in the UK, the US and Germany to understand how widespread different views were and where the balance of opinion was on different issues. Uh, in parallel to that, we conducted 48 in-depth interviews with opinion formers across the UK, the US and the EU, and that included policymakers, regulators, academics, researchers, uh, commentators and other experts. And what I'm going to do is summarise uh, some of the main themes that came out of the research with the public, and I'll hand over to Megan to share some insights from the opinion former interviews. So we found that um, public awareness is high, but understanding um, is still quite low. Uh, on the face of it, the public is really quite familiar, um, particularly for a very novel um, technology. Around nine in 10 in each of our three markets claim to have heard of generative AI. Around a quarter uh, claim to have used uh, ChatGBT before, uh, and that rises to over half of 18 to 24 year olds. Uh, but when you dig a little bit deeper, it quickly becomes apparent that actual understanding uh, is much more limited. Uh, Self-reported usage um, of tools like ChatGPT is much lower among older generations, uh, and there's real potential for people to confuse generative AI with more established um, technologies such as search engines and algorithm uh, recommendations. Uh, the scope for misunderstanding is further evidenced by the small sample of survey respondents who claimed to have used something called Luminosynth Progeny, which is a fictional tool that we got ChatGPT to name for us uh, when we designed the survey. And yet uh, around 9% of our American survey respondents claimed to have tried it out before. 
And when it comes to people's attitudes, generative AI has a relatively middling reputation, and we certainly didn't find any evidence of an acute uh, moral panic. Relatively few people have strong views about it, feeling either very positive or very negative uh, toward the technology. Instead, most people fall somewhere in between, holding mixed views or, or reserving judgment altogether. And that's also clear from people's top of mind associations. Um, the words that come to mind when people think about AI are a mixed bag. Uh, people think um, scary and dangerous, but also uh, helpful and amazing. And in our citizens jury um, that we held in London, it was clear that people had quite nuanced views um, as well, recognizing both potential benefits and risks. Turning to those risks now, uh, we found it interesting that the public actually had a fairly narrow set of concerns. Those that were most front of mind were uh, spreading misinformation, increasing unemployment, and infringing people's privacy. Now, those concerns all reflecting pretty well-established debates about technology and social media in particular, and are indicative of the extent to which the public will view generative AI and, and the development of the technology through the prism of other existing technologies. Um, more novel risks that are perhaps more unique to generative AI, such as uh, infringing IP rights or um, generating or reinforcing biased content, were generally less con concerning to consumers, um, which is a key point of difference as to the views of opinion formers, as I'm sure Megan will come on to. And one thing that was very clear from the research was the extent to which different uh, specific use cases will shape how generative AI is perceived. Uh, consumers often found it difficult to engage with the technology in the abstract, but were able to very readily form judgments on specific applications of it in different contexts. And we tested 15 use cases in total across financial services, healthcare, and other settings, and asked whether people thought they should be um, permitted with no restrictions, permitted with some form of restriction, or banned outright. And across all of the use cases we tested, there was a large majority in favor of some form of restriction. But those calling for outright prohibition of any use cases were um, generally in the minority. And this reflects people's nuanced and balanced views towards the technology in general, recognizing sufficient benefit to permit them, but their concerns meaning that some form of restriction or oversight is preferred. And beyond that overarching consensus, attitudes to different use cases did vary a little. Some, such as running social media accounts entirely by AI, consumers tended to be less comfortable with. Others, such as uh, creating content for an advertising campaign, consumers were more relaxed about and, and preferring fewer restrictions. And we found that the extent to which the public supported restrictions uh, on different use cases was influenced by a complex interplay between uh, five main factors. One was about how novel the use case was perceived to be, with use cases that appeared, even incorrectly, to be similar to existing tools being more reassuring. Uh, another was the extent of human oversight and control, use cases where the technology was making ultimate decisions or providing a service directly, perhaps making investment decisions, were more concerning than instances where the technology was merely providing advice, information, or guidance. Another important factor was the extent to which the use case was seen to uh, address or exacerbate uh, a salient issue. 
Uh, for example, there was quite a bit of public support for use cases that automated administrative healthcare tasks and therefore helped alleviate workforce pressures in the NHS. A more obvious one, uh, use cases that were assumed to have a significant impact were more likely to lead to demands for greater restrictions than those uh, whose impacts were assumed to be minor. And the final factor that influenced um, views towards use cases was who was perceived um, to benefit. And in some cases, such as providing automated financial or legal advice, the benefit to consumers in the form of uh, increased affordability and accessibility was intuitive and clear. Um, in others, um, the benefit was much less obvious. Uh, ultimately, then, despite mixed and, and relatively nuanced um, views towards generative AI overall, as I, as I hope I've shown, um, there was still enough concern to create demand for some form of regulatory um, oversight. There was um, the public didn't really have very specific expectations of what form regulation might look like, but we tested um, a wide range of different initiatives and found pretty widespread um, support for most of them. And as you can see from the table on screen, there were large majorities uh, of the public in each of our three markets in favour of a requirement to obtain consent to use personal data, requiring watermarks for AI-generated content, um, an AI licensing system, and even the creation of a new AI safety regulator. Appetite for these different uh, regulatory and policy initiatives was greatest uh, in the UK, which um, uh, reflects the greater concern there was uh, about generative AI in the UK than uh, Germany and the US. It struck us as interesting that the level of concern in each market didn't necessarily align with how advanced each jurisdiction is when it comes to AI regulation. Um, and while the UK public is most concerned, uh, its legal framework is less interventionist than the EU's uh, AI Act and the executive order um, published in the US on Monday. Uh, with that, I'll hand over to Megan to share some insights from our interviews with opinion formers. Thanks, Raf. Um, I think the main thing to say is uh, all of the policymakers and regulators and other political influencers that we spoke to were certainly worried about the things that RAF outlined, misinformation and data protection and things like that were certainly high. Um, but there were also some unique other concerns that the public weren't worried about, but the political elite are worried about. So one of these is energy consumption and sustainability. Um, lots of concerns about what generative AI might mean for data centers um, and other things like that. The second, um, in the context of upcoming elections in the US, uh, the UK and the EU, lots of worries about using generative AI, not only to spread disinformation, but also um, as it being used for a tool for targeted political campaigning. So um, I think the timing on that one makes that a concern. And the third piece is we heard from a few different stakeholders that there's a lot of focus on kind of online uh, consumer facing content um, that potentially being dangerous. That's obviously probably driven by a lot of a focus on online harms um, over the last year or so uh, across the jurisdictions that we polled. But there's also a concern that perhaps hasn't entered the public arena of discussion yet, which is around infrastructure risks um, and generative AI's ability to create code that could introduce vulnerabilities for things like uh, cyber um, and cyber attacks. 
So moving on to kind of what that means uh, in terms of regulating, um, most of the politicians that we spoke to were very keen to use existing regulations uh, before looking to new ones. But there's some different layers to this that I think are worth unpicking. The first is that the public don't really know that existing regulation exists, whereas actually if you speak to the companies um, and the policymakers and indeed the regulators themselves, there was a feeling that uh, regulators already have the powers that they need, the laws already exist, it's just a case of resourcing and enforcement. And I think one example I heard earlier, which I think is noteworthy, that the Dutch data protection regulator um, apparently was only given an extra 1 million euros to deal with all matters relating to algorithms, which is obviously a drop in the ocean given the scale of the, the current challenge. Um, and it's definitely something that we're seeing uh, as a conversation point in the UK as well, given that the AI white paper suggests existing regulators will be taking on uh, these issues. Um, and then I think the third piece related to this uh, use of existing regulators is about where the onus for proving compliance falls. Um, so, And I think this is something that was discussed quite a bit at the summit over the last couple of days. Um, at the moment, the onus is on regulators to prove that uh, AI companies aren't complying. Um, and there's a question of whether this should be flipped so that uh, companies have to prove that they are complying. Uh, so I think this is the precedent that we see in, for example, biotech, aircraft manufacturing. And there's an argument that maybe this should also fall uh, to technology as well. And for example, perhaps another one to raise there, we already have a legal right uh, against non-discrimination. So it's not the question of do we have existing regulations in place, but a former MEP uh, this morning was saying, how can we know if we've been discriminated against um, when we're using an AI system? And so this right of individuals to challenge things and seek redress is potentially something that doesn't actually work very well in the, the current AI context. So if the current regulation doesn't work all that well, uh, what other policy initiatives um, do we think might be pursued and came out of the, the interviews that we spoke to, um, to people about? The first one, uh, copyright. Um, I think there is particularly in Europe um, high appetite for potentially reforming the copyright directive, um, which was obviously... Uh, drafted a couple of years ago as people were thinking about memes rather than generative AI, given that technology has moved on, uh, does the legislation need to be updated? Another one um, is on watermarking and labelling. Um, and I think there's a reasonable chance that we will see that kind of issue being reopened. It was in the US executive order that it's something that they're going to be looking at more in the US. And I think it's possible that will also happen in Europe. And then on the other end of the spectrum, in terms of kind of least likely, despite what Raf was saying about there being public appetite for a new AI regulator, when you see that through the lens of what I just described, that the public don't even know that AI regulations exist, um, actually, I think the likelihood of a brand new AI-specific regulator um, at a national level is pretty low. Of all of the geographies where we did interviews, I think in the US, there was probably most appetite for it. But for example, in the UK, we had people explicitly saying, we've already got too many AI governance bodies as it is. And it's more just the case we all need to be a bit more coordinated and joined up in those efforts. Moving on to another form of kind of AI regulator and a question which I think was uh, at front of mind for a lot of the AI summit discussions over the past few days was whether we needed a whole new AI international regulator. I think there's a number of reasons why this hasn't come to be, um, despite the potentially being appetite for it um, over the last few months. 
Um, the first one is kind of the question of practical feasibility. Um, so a lot of people were talking about the IAEA, the Atomic Energy Agency, as kind of a, an interesting example to follow. But actually, if you look at the practicality of how that was set up, it took years for it to actually produce its first outputs. Um, and in the context of AI, there's obviously a question of can we wait for years? Um, we don't have that sort of time to lose. Moving on to the second one. I think there's a, a question of kind of whether there is political appetite from it for from the big states uh, who would be driving this. So the US has already got its executive order. The EU has already got its AI Act. Uh, there's international stuff already ongoing with the G7 and the OECD and other bodies. Does anyone really need another kind of uh, international body to be set up? Um, that's an open question. And then finally, um, and this was, again, a question that sort of ran throughout the AI summit, uh, what does this mean for China? Um, so it's one thing for, as we've heard, China to kind of be on the stage, say, shaking hands with the US and other uh, countries and kind of agreeing to very high level principles um, and having these kind of regular check-ins every six months um, as has come out of the summit. But it's quite another thing for China to potentially be uh, a part of a structured regulatory body that kind of has a mandate over other countries. I think worth touching on this existential risks point um, because obviously the AI summit uh, was focused primarily on kind of longer term risks, uh, thinking about things like bioweapons and others. Notably, I think there was probably more discussion at the summit than people expected. Um, apparently, disinformation and bias and things like that did come up. So it's not that they were completely ignored, but the focus was clearly more of the existential um, frontier risks. Um, Conan mentioned already Kamala Harris's speech um, on Tuesday. Uh, not only was she speaking at the embassy rather than at the summit, despite kind of being in the UK uh, once the summit had already started, but also kind of saying uh, existential to who? Um, I mean, is it that the person who suffers from bias or the woman who is threatened with deep fake photographs, they might argue that that's a pretty existential threat in itself um, and that it's perhaps an oversight by governments not to be thinking about that. All of our interviews sort of uh, led to the similar conclusion. Um, interestingly, even within the UK government, um, outside of number 10, I think there was definitely a feeling that um, we should be thinking about uh, other shorter term risks like misinformation and copyright and those other things. And then the final thing uh, that I'll touch on um, is just on this open versus closed source uh, issue, because I think it's something that is only continuing to get traction um, and will uh, no doubt continue to do so. I think there's quite an interesting nuance on this, which is that on the one hand, in recent months, we've definitely seen from multiple different states an increasing focus on uh, the potential of open source AI. Uh, so in France, uh, Macron said over the summer that um, they were big believers in open source AI. He committed French government funding to kind of an open digital commons uh, for generative AI projects. Uh, just earlier today, um, in a letter that I think was spearheaded by Mozilla, um, that was kind of talking about the value of open source AI. There were a number of very high profile French signatories um, on that letter, including uh, Jean-Noël Barrault. In the US, we also saw in the executive order, the Commerce Department uh, committing to doing um, a consultation on open source AI and whether there needs to be regulatory initiatives attached to that. Um, and then in the UK, just yesterday, um, Dowden was clear that uh, open source AI had quite a lot of benefit to offer in particular in terms of allowing startups to scale up quickly.
So we're seeing a lot of political appetite and interest for it. Um, but that said, it seems very unlikely that there's going to be any kind of mandate for open source AI, at least in the near future. From all of the interviews uh, that we did, um, there was a pretty clear feeling that this should be market-led rather than government-led, um, particularly in the UK. Um, I think we've seen already the Competition and Markets Authority published its uh, report, obviously, earlier uh, this year as well, arguing that open source and proprietary models should coexist and that it was healthy to have the two in tandem. Um, we had interviews telling us that actually mandating open source was quite a superficial solution if it was competition that you're after, that actually what you need to have is more of a common ecosystem with compute and skills and infrastructure and all of that sort of thing will actually allow uh, for a diversity of companies to evolve. Um, and then we also had regulators saying that actually they're not that fussed about which way it goes, uh, that it's more about kind of what is the end goal? Um, are people safe and protected rather than being too concerned um, about kind of how we get there? So a long way of saying we'll probably uh, continue to see these debates, but it's quite unlikely that there's going to be any kind of legislative intervention um, in the short term. I'll hand back over to you, Con. Thanks very much. And uh, if we can just then just round off our discussion here, uh, coming to David and to Flo, who lead on our led on the uh, writing, the F financial services and the healthcare sections of the report that we published uh, recently. One of the things that came up that we we alluded to but weren't quite explicit about earlier is that the corporate attendees to the summit this week were entirely technology companies and only a very slim number of technology companies. It was a very narrow. Uh, representation. And this has come in for some criticism uh, that you found other sectors who are going to be deploying AI systems were outside looking in while the world's leaders were talking about how to how to govern and regulate these sectors um, in the future. So great to get perspective from, from other sectors of the economy. So Flo, I wanted to start with healthcare. Are you able to give us just a bit of a sense around the different healthcare use cases that we tested with the public in the UK, Germany, and the US. Were there specific areas where the public were more or less comfortable? Any obvious trends that we saw during the research? Yeah, absolutely. So um, perhaps unsurprisingly, the public were most concerned about those use cases that they saw as more patient-facing or clinical. Uh, so things like diagnostics, mental health, uh, therapy, which are seen as uh, generally higher risk. So a figure that stands out to me was our finding that a quarter of the US public that we surveyed thought that uh, diagnostic uses should be banned uh, entirely. Um, so a very sort of significant backlash uh, there. And sort of in contrast, more administrative tasks such as uh, writing up clinical notes, uh, the public were much more relaxed about. Perhaps quite interestingly, uh, our opinion informers didn't totally agree uh, that administrative tasks were, were low risk, um, raising concerns about um, the impacts of clinical errors, for example, or biases that could be sneaking in there. Uh, but again, I think it really just highlights the gap that we're seeing between existential versus the here and now risks with safety concerns really being up the agenda for the public in the health space. So with the public flow, it sounds like they were less comfortable with a solely generative AI process, the more serious the consequences of a decision became. So administrative tasks, less worried about diagnostics, much more worried about. David, was that the same in financial services? 
I mean, broadly, I think it was actually, which is, it, I think in itself is quite interesting, just given, obviously, both are uh, very highly regulated sectors, but actually, for very different reasons, and the impacts that generative AI, AI could have um, are very different in, in both sectors as well. So I think whilst there's a clear pattern across both of the sectors, um, there seems to be quite a bit of sensitivity from consumers, particularly if they see uh, generative AI and the use of it impacting their their, their rights, for example, uh, whether they, those be human or whether it's uh, some other perception. So we tested cases particularly around, you know, automated decisioning around benefits, for example, um, or on credit scoring, uh, two of which have very different implications for consumers and consumers seemed less comfortable with th those types of scenarios, which, uh, which I think is interesting. But there are potential material gains in some areas as well. So across all of the jurisdictions, areas like fraud detection, for example, and deploying AI to, to reduce fraud uh, was seen as quite a positive thing. Um, that being said, obviously, the, the other hand risk of that is actually generative AI could be used uh, to defraud consumers um, and used uh, incorrectly in fraudsters' hands to, to manipulate consumers. Um, so there is quite a balance to that. And I think that was interesting to see play out in the citizens jury that we that we did hold, uh, which obviously uh, gave a bit more flavour to how consumers actually felt about the issues. And certainly uh, what seemed to come through in that discussion was where they saw there was potential human intervention within that process. Uh, consumers seemed much more comfortable with that, that type of uh, scenario. Um, so that was definitely one of the interesting aspects I found. So David, Flo alluded to the idea that there were some differences in what the so-called opinion formers, so regulators, government officials, and so on, what they were worried about and what the public was worried about. Was that the same in financial services? Were there certain things that you found regulators and policymakers were more focused on than, say, the public were? I mean, definitely. I think a lot of that is, is the background areas where obviously there's a high level of regulation that exists already, um, but it's interesting to see particularly where it relates to the risks uh, that were identified, they were very different to consumers. So two of those that, that I found particularly interesting were where you could see generative AI being used in the markets, for example. So um, in insider trading, for example, which was actually uh, funnily tested uh, recently, um, and that was found that in insider trading could be uh, a major issue that generative AI is is deployed uh, to essentially uh, have, you know have potential problems within financial markets. Um, another was uh, particularly where it comes to uh, critical third parties within financial services. So at the moment, uh, regulators do perceive a bit of an over reliance on a small number of tech firms, particularly when it comes to say cloud computing, for example. One of the issues on generative AI is actually does that compound the issue and, and kind of creates a new subsector within that that effectively means there is over-reliance again on, on a number of very limited parties that, that provide these types of services. It was a striking finding of the report, not just for healthcare and for financial services, but more broadly, that there was this, this big discrepancy I found between, it's not that the public weren't concerned, but I think the extent to which I had expected before we did the research, I thought it would be much higher much more alarmist, greater science as we were talking about earlier with Raf about moral panic. And actually, it was the really informed stakeholders who seemed to be much, much more worried. But they had more specific concerns, but they also more broadly, I think, had a greater intensity of concern than most members of the public that we either polled or that we spoke to in the in the focus group. But Flo, if we can then um look on to more specifically those, those the opinion formers as we call them. 
Megan's talked in quite a lot of detail there about the broader sense that we got from opinion formers about their concerns and where they saw regulation going. Did you get any, was it similar in healthcare? Was it similar trends or something more specific that you found with the, that group of stakeholders? Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, while many of the themes uh, around the concerns were similar, so privacy, cyber infrastructure, I'd say that generally the level and tenor of concern that we found with our opinion formers was kind of amplified in the health space, reflecting just how sensitive a, a sector it is. Um, I mean, two that particularly stood out that were quite unique to healthcare um, that I think could be really important in driving future regulation are concerns about health inequalities uh, and questions of liability. So health inequality is very much up the political and policy agenda in the health space. Um, you know, we saw a real concern that um, generative AI could amplify existing health inequalities. So those groups who are already less likely to access healthcare will be much less represented in the data that underpins these generative AI tools and therefore could reinforce, for example, medical tropes that we see, such as how different patient groups experience pain. Um, the second very much linked to this um, is a question of liability. Who is responsible for uh, patient harms that could arise in the health setting? Um, and we heard very clearly that health systems clinicians are really worried about this. Um, and this can potentially be uh, a major factor in shaping the appetite to even adopt generative AI tools. Um, so actually, this could either be something that shapes future regulation and drives up the urgency for, for government-led legislation, or indeed could be something that uh, innovators need to tackle more quickly and could be a sort of driving force for, for good behavior, if you like, uh, as um, sort of some self-regulation in the space. So both potential drivers adding urgency to the debate for regulation in the health space. And we've talked here, Flo, quite a lot uh, with both of you about the difference between the public and, I guess, expert elite opinion. We haven't talked so much about the differences between geographies. Did you notice, say, when we think about what regulation may or may not come in the healthcare space, was there a marked difference between the EU, the UK and the US or, or not so much? Yeah, when we talk about um, health regulation, actually, when we look at the uh, questions of clinical safety and health regulation, we find that actually the regulators, the health regulators themselves are fairly aligned across the markets. Um, you know, relative to other sectors, they've been relatively far ahead and proactive in coming up with solutions to the questions of safety. Um, so, for example, only this week, uh, the US, uh, UK and Canada actually released shared guidance um, to help uh, progress the questions and, and uh, tools that they have to tackle safety issues. Um, but quite obviously, uh, we heard loud and clear that AI regulation doesn't fit neatly within the jurisdiction just of a health regulator. Uh, and when it comes to questions of uh, liability, data privacy, data protection, actually uh, a more holistic approach or cross-cutting approach could be needed. And that's where we saw more of the market-specific differences that Megan alluded to earlier. So the US, uh, much less likely to take that kind of um, approach potentially having more space to be shaped by liability questions, whereas the EU being much more proactive with that EU AI Act. Um, so that's really where we saw those differences. Great. And then, David, if we could just conclude with you, can you just, we, we touched it a bit there with Flow in healthcare, but with FS, was it the case that 
people thought that you needed to enforce rules better that already exist, to Megan's point earlier? Or is it that there is a need in financial services for new rules in order to cope with generative AI or indeed AI more broadly? I, th- I think actually it was a bit of both, uh, which is interesting in its own right. And I think there was a bit of a mixed view depending on which jurisdiction you're from. That seems obvious, obviously, but um, it is interesting when you look across the UK and EU, where we have initiatives in place, particularly for financial services that could already cover uh, some of the regulation of AI. So particularly in the UK, for example, we have the consumer duty and the senior managers regime for financial institutions, which could be used as a tool by the Financial Conduct Authority to essentially uh, to essentially regulate providers as they stand at the moment already. Um, that wasn't quite the same in the US, for example, where there isn't that t- same type of regulation. Um, in the UK and EU, uh, they tend to prefer to try to preempt issues um, and have more horizontal regulation across financial services that does uh, help intervene in those cases. I mean, one of the aspects I found really interesting that came across in all jurisdictions uh, was the capability of regulators. So there really isn't that much AI expertise to go around. And one of the interesting things was quite a distinct worry from the industry um, about the ability of regulators to understand and keep up to date with the the technology development, uh, but also the issues that could uh, arise as well. So examples of that being things like insider, insider trading, where that would be very difficult for a regulator that doesn't fully understand a generative AI system to really intervene within the markets. Um, another aspect where there was some quite critical natures from uh, opinion formers was particularly around international FS regulators. Obviously, consumers wouldn't know of those particular FS regulators like the Bank for International Settlements, for example. Um, but there was quite a lot, lot of uh, criticism on the lack of expertise and proactiveness of those types of regulators uh, around coordinating different issues in, in generative AI and the issues that are being posed across different jurisdictions as well. So uh, quite a lot to unpack within there, but I think um, quite a lot that came from the opinion formers on the issues of regulation in financial services. Great. Well, look, thanks to you all for uh, your contributions. We covered a lot of different ground from public opinion to elite opinion, to financial services, to healthcare, to the EU, the UK, the US, a lot to ground covered. So thank you for, for doing that. If you want to follow up with us, uh, we'd be very happy to talk about either the summit or the research report that we published uh, last week. Uh, you can find our details at www.global-council.com. You can download the report there, um, but please do get in touch. We'd love to continue the conversation with you in the coming weeks and the coming months. So thank you and have a nice weekend. Bye-bye.